Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, <laughs> um, which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language. So here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like... All this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself. Um, keep listening. Hi, ho, hello, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast, the show where we talk about colonialism like she's that bitch and or dick from high school and without naming names you know exactly who you were talking about i'm not gonna name names though um welcome back to my podcast and today i have a very special guest i'll let her introduce herself hey <laughs> what am i supposed to say okay okay tell t- tell the people who you are um what's up my name is annette mm-hmm. i am mm-hmm. a long time friend of Aileen's. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've known each other since we were 10. Yep. Um, yeah, so I'm passionate about, <laughs> you know, African issues, feminism, sexuality, okay. all that good stuff. All right, cool. Okay, cool. Perfect. So um, the people that listen to this podcast know that I usually reserve this particular section for a long-winded rant about whatever is on my mind. Um, do you have anything you want to rant about? Like the world, capitalism, I don't know, cameras? Like, what, what, what do you want to rant about? Anything in your heart? Honestly, one thing I've lately been <laughs> reflecting on. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. You have my blessing. And I think do I it. probably, like, do DM'd it. you about yes. this. Yeah, but I've been feeling like, you know, love is... <laughs> really a commodified concept Uh and you know we're presented with this idealistic image of you know what love is and how couples relate Mm -hmm. to each other but i think it's actually all fake Mm -hmm. and like i'm upset that we're sold (laughs) (laughs) this idea that monogamous romantic love Mm -hmm. you know is very functional and very achievable Mm -hmm. But also that, you know, romantic love is the highest form of love and that that's what we should aspire to. Actually, I completely agree with you in that because um, one of my favorite facts about the Greek language is that they have five different words for love. Mm. And the romantic love is just but one of them. There's like brotherly love. Mm. I think there's like the love you share with God. Mm. Um, so the thing that we all think of as like romantic love to me has always been like eros, which is like quite sexual, it's quite mm-hmm. passionate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are right that like the... As a society, you put a lot of stock into it. Yeah. And that's not right. Yeah. Like, Especially at this age. Like, thank you. you know, once like, you hit your 20s, mid-20s, oh, after this, God. we should be thinking about who we're pairing thank up you. with. Especially especially as women. Especially once you get to the age of 30. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, your quote-unquote stock, mm-hmm. like your value on the marriage market depreciates. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. That makes absolutely no yeah. sense. How, how can you tell me that you don't want a woman that understands who she is, is confident in her skin, has a number of things under her belt? Like, how mm-hmm. can you not tell me you want that glorious specimen? Yeah. Yeah. Some bullshit. How do you not? That's some bullshit. And then, it's, it's just this concept that most relationships that you see, I think people are really tolerating a lot of bullshit <laughs> in their relationships. Like, can we just be honest about that? <laughs> Let's just be honest. Like, you could be out there, like, telling people, we've been together for five years, yeah. three years, we're so happy, but, like, I know you're out here tolerating bullshit. And I'm here to say, you don't have to. <laughs> you can leave if you want to. It's fine. It's fine, honestly. Um, but that's, like... I think that has more to do with human psychology than anything else. I'm really sure you've heard of the the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Like once you get once you sink a lot of time, effort, right? Uh, money resources. Into a thing, yeah. resources yeah. into a thing, it becomes a lot harder for you to just check out and mm-hmm. say no. Mm-hmm. I want to abandon this because yeah. you've already invested so yeah. much. Yeah. You yeah. need to believe that there's some possibility of a exactly. return before I don't know the hole swallows you whole again. Exactly, and I think. It's like, you know, a lot of intelligent people out there can recognize that this, my partner is, you know, maybe fucking up mm. and, 
you know, I, I need to choose better. Mm. But you're also seeing that I've invested so much. We've had so many yes. memories and yes. moments together. And, you know, you probably end up forgiving them. Yeah. But, like, at that point, when you first, like, forgive them or, like, you know, accept that mm. mistake and move on with your relationship, like, that shit is just likely to happen again. And, and again. You know? And yeah, again, yeah. And again. You, you, have, you have a very, very good point right there. Especially when... Lord, it's, it's, it's not even like the memories. It's the more practical shit. It's the fact that if you've been living together for a while, you have to think, oh, fuck, I have to not stop paying full rent. Right? Right. Oh, I'm, I'm not ready for that. Or Same or, thing happened to my cousin. Yeah. 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 Or like, or, 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 or all of a sudden, like, you have the same friends. You're like, oh, now I have to break up friends. Right. Or like, he's met my grandparents. At that point, like, when, when the partner has met your grandparents. And your parents. And, and, your, and your cousins. Ooh, like. Yeah. Like, especially in African culture. Because you just don't bring anyone to meet anyone. You just don't. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. Um, so. And then, the other thing is that even if you've explained to them, like, even if you've explained to your family, like, yeah. the issues you're going through. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Ooh. Like, that often leads to, like, you know, them being like, okay, so this is that person who's doing all that stuff to you, and you've taken them back. So, yeah. like, parties outside of your relationship also get to weigh in yeah. on, like, you know, yeah. this is what you're doing. Yes, yes, that happens, like... Uh, that happens a lot in families. It makes me really sad because, like, family is supposed to be the one group of people that are supposed to love you right. and have your back. And in the very least, like, not judge you and the wound is so raw. Mm-hmm. Maybe wait a couple of years and then be like, you were you was digmatized, weren't like, you? Damn, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, sis. Like, that sense. I know, I know. I feel like it's been enough time. Like, you've been going to therapy. You've been fine. The meds have been working. I'm so proud of you. But you, you did some dumb nah, shit back then. Girl, you, you need to tell me when I'm tripping. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't care how, you know? I don't care how tough it is for you. Like, you need to tell me, like... Oh, you, need to, you need to understand that it's hard, right? Because then I would be the person destroying the illusion of happiness. You yeah, would blame that's, me. That's the issue with that. You would that's blame the me. Yeah. Until, until you saw yeah. it yourself, yeah. you would blame me. Yeah, it, it really has to be yourself to see it. Dear Lord, yeah, man. Oh my goodness! You can't you you can't tell people who are in love. <laughs> By the way, could you also do the same thing for me? Because it's really hard. It's really hard. Like for what's it called? Um, from Bojack Horseman, there was a was it the cat lady or the or the only human being there who said, "When you are looking at life through." rose-colored glasses everything looks like red flags mm. right and i feel like sometimes that's what it is in relationships like mm. you just you have your love goggles on so everything looks like it's romantic everything looks like it's great and it takes a lot of introspection to realize like or rather to differentiate between the romantic acts that are performative mm-hmm. and the romantic acts that are just just because just because mm-hmm. like he wants to appreciate you mm-hmm. or cherish you or just i don't know mm-hmm. make you smile mm-hmm. or make you think about him because mm-hmm. you miss him and makes it a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough. And I think there's also a lot of narcissists out there. And, you know, one thing about narcissists is that they'll often ask you when you first d- date them, yeah. like, you know, what you're into. So they'll get to know about you and, you know, what really excites you. And, you know, they'll do that mm-hmm. in the beginning of the relationship and really get you in. You know, if you like gifts, yes. that's what they'll do for you. If you, you know, are, are a physical mm-hmm. person, they'll get into that with you. And then you know, it just sort of, like, becomes a way that they can tie you in. And sometimes it depends on your level of trauma and experiences. And, like, it makes it easier to believe people's lies and, you know, buy into, you know, this ideal love. I mean, you hear, like, on the topic of ideal love, you hear a lot of, when I say adults, I mean people older than us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch, like, we're old. I, I feel like you haven't internalized no, this, but I we're in our mid twenties. No, okay. First of all, <laughs> first of all, they did not know what age I was. Did I just expose you on yeah, your you podcast? Did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you kind of did. But second of all, but second of all, I think the reason why I don't think of myself as closer to thirty than twenty. Oh mm-hmm. God! Oh God! Yeah, imagine be- that. Is is because is because it doesn't feel like it? Because uh-huh. like you see on the TV shows, like how people react to being thirty. Yeah. You get, 
to somewhat like a midlife crisis. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here being like, girl, I've been anxious since I was 12. Right? <laughs> so what are you talking about midlife crisis? I've been having a midlife crisis for most of my fucking life. So at this point, it's not a crisis. It's just normal life. Um, so I feel like I sh- I'm not feeling the pressure to be doing shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's because I'm just disillusioned with the world and I've just come to accept that Unlike my parents, I may not own property before I turn 30. And it sucks. No matter mm-hmm. how hard I try, it sucks. Mm-hmm. And this is me coming from a position of privilege, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, it sucks. Mm-hmm. But I've come to accept it. And I'm now trying to figure out, okay, how do I now define success for my life? Yeah. Based on my own metrics yeah. and, and all that shit. But point is... When I talk to adults, like people who are mm-hmm. older than us, mm-hmm. and a lot of them bemoan the state of love mm-hmm. um, in modern relationships. Right? Um, <laughs> and Nairobi. I'm like, Nairobi is character <laughs> development. You know, ooh. The streets. Ooh, <laughs> my God. Yeah. And, and a lot of them like do bemoan the state of our current relationships. So like the perhaps almost unfairly sometimes mm-hmm. because I mean statistics show that like our generations are like more likely to be to, to wait more likely to be knowledgeable of consent mm-hmm. to like want more equal partnership in a relationship that kind of shit um, but to them all they're seeing is like I don't know the side chicks the, the girlfriends the mistresses mm-hmm. and the wife all of which are separate people by the way mm-hmm. um, see, <laughs> no it's the truth don't you remember that football player that was like I want to thank um, my, my wife yeah. and my, my, my girlfriend you're like what you know he was like they're both important <laughs> <laughs> if I was a wife I would be like girlfriend why is she first and not me hey you know <laughs> point is point is I do think that sometimes they have a point yeah. when they when they complain that like things are not what they used to be mm-hmm. um, but I also think that a lot of those complaints are coming from a place of like discomfort and unfamiliarity because mm-hmm. the way in which we have our relationships, I feel, are a lot more honest. Mm-hmm. We're a lot more willing to have conversations about, should we keep this open or closed? Um, I, I hear you. Yeah. And, like, maybe those conversations are, you know, maybe being had yeah. more frequently yeah. these days. However, I still think it's really difficult. Um, we live in a very heteronormative culture. Yeah. Um, and part of heteronormativity is monogamy. Yes. Um, so I guess people are now starting to mm. question monogamy to yeah. a certain extent, but it's still, you know, not there yet. Yeah. You know, I always thought of myself as a very open-minded mm. person and very forward-thinking, mm. but I think even I've struggled in, in my relationships bringing up, you know, the concept of opening up a relationship. You know, it brings up a lot of different mm. things from... You know, someone who's view, viewed as a woman in society. Mm. You know, there's you know the slut shaming mm. aspect. Yeah. Um, it's it's that you know you should just want one person. Yeah. What are you like? What do you need from other people? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think we're starting to question it, question you know the concept of monogamy more. Mm. However, I don't think we're like quite there yet with having open communications, telling your partner that, yo, like, I desire this other person. And for your partner to be like, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. That's or, like, you, you, it's okay for you to spend this time with this person. Or, 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 or not even that, mm-hmm. but, like, if they're uncomfortable with it, be able to communicate that discomfort in a way that is still respectful. Right. And very mindful. Yeah. That, like, I'm talking to another human being who yeah. has other wants and needs. Mm-hmm. And, like, let's let's try to figure this shit out. Yeah. Because a lot of the time, those conversations get very confrontational mm-hmm. very fast. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if, I, if my partner wanted to have the conversation with me, I know my first reaction would be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Isn't this enough yeah, for you? It's, you like, know? it's like very defensive uh-huh. first, right? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be. It's going to take a lot of time to be like, okay, let's let's talk about this, mm-hmm. and it's going to hurt me. Yeah, but let's let's a do lot, it. and you might be defensive, yeah. and that's what initially might prevent this partner of mm. yours from approaching you yeah. about it because it's a very difficult conversation, and you might never be comfortable with it at the end of the mm. day. So. Yeah, I think we haven't been equipped with the tools to mm-hmm. have these discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more and more, there's you know more resources coming up for us to learn. And I think mm-hmm. if you're invested in you know learning how to mm-hmm. have open discussions with people that you love, and you know detangling your idea of love from you know monogamy, this is a whole different concept. No, no, no. I no, I, I completely understand mm-hmm. what you're talking about. I think what you're 
getting to is that we need to stop taking the basics of relationships for granted. Yeah. We need to go back to like literally back to basics and have those fundamental conversations mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. we all know what we've all seen what relationships look like. Yes. Mm-hmm. But does that model work for us? Yeah. If yeah. it doesn't, what does work what for works us? What works for us? Let's have that conversation yeah. Yeah. and let's be willing to explore as many possibilities as possible yeah. because our relationship and the connection that we have matters to us. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that like you can use this as an excuse to go fucking around on your partner, fuck off. No, mm-hmm. don't. That's a that's that's some dickish behavior right there. Yeah, you know? However, mm-hmm. if you feel like you're in a relationship that can withstand that level of honesty, because mm-hmm. it's gonna be brutal. Yeah, because honestly, like even though you're in a relationship with someone, yeah. that doesn't prevent you from looking at someone else and finding them attractive. Like, you know, maybe consciously you do not want mm. to cheat, but like you can see someone or you can engage with someone and be attracted to them and there's nothing you can do about that. So, like, I think it's also about having open and honest conversations about, like, you know, it's possible for your partner to be attracted to other people. Other people. Other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's also this idea, and I think we've discussed this, of, Mm -hmm. like, overvaluing romantic love. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, we should de-emphasize the importance of, like, romantic love in our lives. It shouldn't be be a goal. It should be... I don't know. It shouldn't be a goal. It's nothing bad, but yeah. I think there's different types of relationships and we can and, and, embrace and all of them. True. And mm-hmm. and what I mean when I say that it shouldn't be a goal is mm-hmm. that it is not something that you should aspire to because then like it becomes yeah, yeah, as like an achievement, like mm-hmm. a like a star you get on mm-hmm. your on your chest when you've answered the right question now you in have school. A partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then you start looking for the the thing and not the person you're sharing it with. Mm-hmm. Which can open you up to a lot of dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, are you good? Yeah, you're yeah. good. That was that was <laughs> an amazing rant. Um, you see, you it's know. quite therapeutic. Yeah, right? yeah. It, right? it got out all my feelings around what, you know, my frustrations around love lately. <laughs> love in these streets. <laughs> all right, so we're gonna take a quick break because we, uh, we need to have a drink, and then we'll be right back. It seems like we are back. Yes, we are. Um, you know what kind of podcast this is? It is a drink-friendly podcast. However, we are not drunk, but we are not sober either. Um, <laughs> so onwards and upwards. Today, we are going to be talking about a lot. We will start with conspiracies, and then we'll make our way onto population control, and then contraception in general. Um, now, if you've got your antenna on, then you can see where this is going. You can see it's going to be like some racist-ass bullshit. <laughs> But if not, then you're in for a ride. Before we begin, though, I do want to issue a trigger warning because we are talking about IUDs or an intrauterine device um, that caused some real fucked up harm. Like I'm talking about internal bleeding and then death. Like it's bad. Mm. So if that triggers some things for you, I'm very sorry. And this may be an episode that you want to skip. Um, Having said this, let's begin by having a quick conversation about conspiracies and conspiracisms. Now, Mm -hmm. Annette, tell me, what do you think about conspiracy theories? I think I understand why they exist, Mm -hmm. you know. There's this human need to question, you know, what the conventional knowledge is. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, definitely some people take it too far and, you know, you need to engage some critical thinking. (laughs) Okay, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? Mm, I think the flat... Earth is pretty. Those are the ones that got the the Netflix documentary, right? Which one? I don't know. I remember there being like a flat Earth Netflix documentary. It's probably something like that. Oh my god. Okay, so (laughs) the reason why I want us to start talking about conspiracy theories first is because our current socio political climate, and by our, I mean Kenya's, Mm -hmm. is a little bit fucked up. Um, By Mm -hmm. by the time this episode comes out, um, the campaign season will have officially begun. It begins from May 29th and then ends on August 6th, Um, which means that. People have been campaigning since 2020, but like it hasn't actually counted as campaigning. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the fuck's been going on. Anyway, um, but now things have been kicked into high gear to the extent where whenever I'm on Twitter or on social media, mm-hmm. I kind of have to like triple check everything I see mm-hmm. because some of the shit seems like it shouldn't be real mm-hmm. and you're never quite sure. 
because there's a lot of misinformation out there. So much mm-hmm. so that I think there was even a Guardian article about this at the beginning of the year saying that, ooh, the Kenyan elections are going to be characterized by a ton of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that things are, for example, like, remember the fuel crisis in April or something? Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> shit that's been going down. <laughs> but yes. So so during that fuel crisis, it came out apparently that the Kenyatas had owned, like, were part owners of Rubis Kenya. Um, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it called? The Akinaruto guys were saying that they had voted down the fuel subsidy when it first came about in Parliament. Mm-hmm. That's not true. They voted it through. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> It, it it was a lot of it was a lot of like slinging mud, mm-hmm. and because I had the time and I guess the the desire to figure out what the truth is mm-hmm. be, be, within the message, I was able to do it. A lot of people don't have that time. A lot of people don't want to because it's just a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And in this kind of climate, you have the rise of a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of harmful and potentially deadful conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this because they are an excellent way of mobilizing your base. Yeah. Very like just look at QAnon in the US. Like Donald mm-hmm. Trump in the very beginning was was never a QAnon person. Mm-hmm. But once he realized that hey, I can get these guys to come out and vote for me if mm-hmm. I just keep writing them up time and time again, mm-hmm. then he has a ready-made base that mm-hmm. only believes in him, um, mobilized and ready to go vote in every little election. Yeah. And it's not the big ones that matter. Yeah. It's the little itty bitty ones, yeah. and that's where they go vote. Yeah. Um, so ah uh, yes, why did I bring this up? Yes, I remember bringing this up to talk about the political power of a conspiracy theory and how this political power can then be co-opted and turned into conspiracism. But I haven't yet described what the difference is between these two. So like, hang on, give me, give me a minute. According to Butte College, and I quote, conspiracism is a worldview that sees history as driven primarily by interwoven webs of secret conspiracies. On the other hand, conspiracy theories are leaner, more restrained, more limited in scope than conspiracism. A conspiracy theory alleges that a secret conspiracy involving hidden actors is behind particular historical events. Its explanation for events usually runs counter to the official or mainstream account, which is itself seen as an elaborate fabrication, end quote. Did that, was that a lot? Did that make sense? Kind of. <laughs> Break it down for me. Okay. <laughs> for us. Okay, so, so. Um, so a conspiracy theory is kind of like it's kind of like the yeah the the, the, the plan to assassinate no all those plans to assassinate Fidel Castro right and and to just basically like to fuck with Cuba mm-hmm. like that is a conspiracy mm-hmm. conspiracism mm-hmm. was America's idea in the 1950s like the 1980s mm-hmm. that everything that was going on in the world was related to communism mm-hmm. and that communism was behind every okay. fucking thing mm-hmm. even though you know for something like Vietnam mm-hmm. It was more about the independence and like wanting to be able to determine what we do with our economy mm-hmm. than it was about any particular economic mm-hmm. view, mm-hmm. right? It just so happened that you know after being after being exploited by colonial power for like mm-hmm. a while, you might not be so into capitalism, right. and you might want to consider some more leftist perspectives. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just a thought. <laughs> um, so th- th- there are five distinctive speeches of conspiracism. I remember that the end result of this process is a summary of complex events turned into a simplified story, typically involving a very powerful enemy group um, Mm -hmm. that deliberately organizes and carries out this evil plan, like the Illuminati or... Wow, I can't really think of anything else. Yeah. Do you you know any other big conspiracy? Like the Catholic Church? (laughs) Does that count? (laughs) It's a big one. Ku Klux Clan. Yeah, the KKK, like, 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 like those big ass groups. Like, yeah. Just, just to help like pepper the story. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, now they do this by establishing patterns that like link together connections between actors and objects and people, mm-hmm. and then they inject agency, which is that these actions were done on purpose, mm-hmm. um, and then they find their group of actors, i.e., the people that are committing these actions, the people that are committing these actions. Um, and the people who are ultimately united in a purpose, i.e. to take over the world and institute the new world order kind of thing. Um, And then they identify hostility. Or, you know, the reason that these guys are all doing these things is is often very negative. It's, I want to control you, I want to subjugate you, I want to oppress you. Mm -hmm. And finally, to keep this all going, they tack on the promise of continued secrecy, i.e. 
no one can know why we did what mm. we did mm. right that's how that's that that is what conspiracism is mm-hmm. um and if you haven't noticed it's quite a convoluted process mm-hmm. right because it, it it's one that attempts to explain the gaps in the evidence mm-hmm. by adding more gaps into the evidence <laughs> like questioning the things that we already know right cuz mm-hmm. it, it kind of reminds me of it kind of reminds you of flat earthers being like, well, if the earth is, if the earth is round, how come, how come I can't see the, the, the curve of the globe? And it's like, mm-hmm. wait, so I have an interesting thought. Okay. Do you think, um, there's any way possible for conspiracy, you know, to be positive? For way? example, um, do you know about Dr. Umar? And, oh. you know, like, What's, what's that? Hotep. You know, like oh, those, those okay, African-Americans know, okay, who are I know, like... I know, you know about Hotep, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super conscious and all about, you know, black history, yeah. black... Uh, and promoting black people. So, Do you think that there's a way that that can be positive or you think it's harmful to... No, I think mm-hmm. I think it is positive, yes, in the sense of... As an, as an oppressed community, you do need heroes to look up to. Mm-hmm. And the history that you were taught often places people that look like you, people that think like you, people with your you know, general distinctive features as right. the victims of history. Unfortunately, right. and often it's almost portrayed as inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the Europeans didn't have a choice when they did. Historically speaking, they chose to do the shit that they did. And history doesn't teach it that way. So to be taught a different history that glorifies black the black presence on this planet that glorifies mm-hmm. mother africa mm-hmm. is a very even though it's conspiracy because yeah. not yeah. all of it yeah. is. that's the thing no not all of it like <laughs> that's that that for me is where it gets quite harmful because yeah. not all of it is true yeah. so you're basically believing lies to make yeah. yourself feel better yeah when even the, when the truth is perfectly fine as well right like it we do as as they didn't need to be this great united african civilization it, it is okay for our ancestors to have lived in huts and to have found peace working farms and living agricultural lives. Yeah. It is fine. But well, we really want to believe that we have... Yeah, like these, these great European yeah. notions of, of, of grandness and grandeur. And it's like, no. We had our own notions. And I'm very sorry that you've been taught otherwise. But and what I'm even more sorry about is that, you know, that history has been erased so much that, that there's so much we don't know about our our own history mm-hmm. and so much brilliance mm-hmm. um and we're taught to view things from the lens of like you know whiteness yes you know so like their idea of success is what we quantify mm-hmm. as success and happiness and yeah that's... no you're completely right because i was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about our experiences living in europe mm-hmm. um so and i will say this rather ironically I am quite glad I went to Western Europe because mm-hmm. at least there, there's like black culture. Because my friend, she studied in Eastern Europe where mm-hmm. you are as a dark skinned, not, not even dark skinned, as a black person, right. you're an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Whereas at least in the UK, we were there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you could not ignore us, right? right. And we were discussing how it, the experiences were very similar. Like we both felt the pressure to adhere mm-hmm. to a white standard of beauty, which often meant that sometimes you would crave to be skinny over just embracing your luscious curves Mm -hmm. it meant like spending tons of money trying to make sure your hair was either in a wig or Mm -hmm. a weave or like perfectly kept all the time Mm -hmm. because you had to adhere to this other standard that wasn't your own Mm -hmm. and i didn't realize how much of that i had imposed on myself Mm -hmm. until when i came home Mm -hmm. and i realized yo it's chill yeah, it's fine yeah that. it's cool mm-hmm. like we're all we're all good mm-hmm. oh my word okay so we do need to talk about the particular socio-economic context in which conspiracy theories arise mm-hmm. um and to put it simply conspiracy theories attempt to explain the unexplainable right. um think about the biggest conspiracy theories that are the, are the most famous right mm-hmm. things like 9-11 trutherism mm-hmm. um came about because just people could not believe mm-hmm. that that could happen to America. That mm-hmm. like pe- that somebody got the jump on the greatest military power in, in the world. Um, think about the JFK assassination. Like that just that just couldn't happen because mm-hmm. e- e- even during Lincoln's assassination, there was a lot of conspiracy theories there about there's just no way he a president a whole ass president could have been assassinated like that. It's just weird, right? Um, so 
and it makes and it makes a lot of sense because none of these events have simple explanations mm-hmm. but they are the result of like interwoven systems and structures that were laid months if not years if not decades in advance mm-hmm. but because human beings love if not if not crave simplicity right <laughs> you, you we we crave order mm-hmm. um we go looking for it when we can't find it mm-hmm. it's why we look at the clouds and we find shapes mm-hmm. it's why if you give us a, a random assortment of numbers our mind will find patterns between mm-hmm. between them all at, at mm-hmm. some point mm-hmm. um it's because our brains are trying their best they really mm-hmm. are to mm-hmm. organize all the information we receive and if that information fits in like in in preordained boxes that we have identified ourselves it makes the work a lot easier yeah like preordained boxes like um I don't trust the government or I believe that white people are out to get us. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> like given the history. Yeah, given the history like you're like <laughs> I I understand where you're coming from. I get right. it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um but this does not mean that every conspiracy that arises is successful. IE mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that every conspiracy that comes about has has that staying power, right? Mm-hmm. Um this is because social life is not static, it is quite dynamic mm-hmm. and a lot of shit is happening all the time. So mm-hmm. when a conspiracy is unleashed into the public consciousness, it is not the only thing floating around in there and it has to relate to all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um so the theories that are best capable of absorbing as much knowledge as possible from other areas of 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 our social life mm-hmm. are the ones that will stay. A really good example of this is mm-hmm. the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. Right? Another one is um QAnon. Um, yeah. or 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 the ones that they try to explain Princess Diana's assassination. This search for reason and this desire to make it make sense um is what pushes us to more and more conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um quoting from and I really I know I'm going to butcher this name and just please please forgive me. Um Adeolo Oloisei Oyekan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quote, a conspiracy theorist is driven by a desire to know the truth, but since the truth is impossible because it is constantly sliding away, they can only sustain their desire by constantly plunging into endless further details. The conspiracy theorist begins to pay more attention to insignificant details, and this chain of insignificant details only become meaningful if it is read as a symptom of his desire for revelation that can never be fulfilled. End quote. So basically because the truth is so elusive mm-hmm. you start to latch onto these little insignificant things to yeah. try to find the truth build a pattern yeah mm-hmm. because it helps um in this manner those that believe conspiracy theories are more alike than they are dissimilar they are all pol- like politically um alienated and have lost faith in traditional means of government to support them and to and to solve the problems in their lives mm-hmm. and so they look to many other groups to be the beneficiaries of this faith This explains why communities of color or marginalized communities like queer, disabled or immigrant communities are more likely to believe conspiracy theories. These mm. groups face real problems mm. that the government has either failed to ignore or has actively encouraged or consciously manipulated for decades. So, can you expect for example the African American community in the US to trust the US public health system after the Tuskegee after the Tuskegee experiments? You can't. You, you can't. Really you, re- you really can't, especially when the government has not done much to mm-hmm. build back that public trust. Mm-hmm. Um and in the very least root out the the, the very racial and, and sexist bias that exists within medicine. Yeah. They've done nothing. No. And you know, maternal mortality rates amongst black mm. women in the US are you know quite high you know they're shocking yeah. absolutely shocking in a country that does not give that does not guarantee paid maternity leave mm-hmm. you cannot afford to have that many women going through those many complications whilst giving birth a thing that you actively are encouraging by the way because you need a population to keep surviving as a country but let's move on to another area of the world like how can you expect the, the global south to trust the global north mm-hmm. or even global public health practices mm-hmm. when like the CIA wants um the CIA wants fake to hepatitis B vaccine drive to try to get Osama bin Laden in Pakistan <laughs> i shit you not no i shit you wow. not i shit you not right but because that story came out a lot of communities are like but how how sure are you that they're not coming just to take our blood to yeah. go do something funny with it out there yeah, yeah. How, how how do we know right mm-hmm. how can we expect the people of kenya the people of africa the people of the global south to trust the west when 
every single time they have tried to help, mm-hmm. they've always fucked it up in a new and very specific way. Right? How? Even the fact that so many NGOs are operational in Kenya and in different African countries, it's like if there's so many of them and so many of them have received enough funding, yeah, why you. isn't the yeah, issue exactly. solved? Why? <laughs> like, like, what's go- that's it's a, a business. That's that's why. That's a very important question. Like, why have we? How? Why haven't we solved the issue? Now, here's where we get to like the tricky bit about conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes conspiracy theories are rooted in a kernel of truth um for example during the 1980s and the hiv aids crisis um the conspiracy theory that the u.s government was responsible for the spreading of aids in the african-american communities and in africa um contained within it the kernel of truth that the united states of america will do whatever it needs to do to deal with what it considers to be a threat and that historically speaking it has always considered african-american communities or people of color as a threat um and this is the point like i was trying to make with this next section it's just not clear which is why you're hearing me editing this in post clarifying it all right okay let's get back into it now here's where we get to like the tricky bit about conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. because not all conspiracy theories are created equal Mm -hmm. it is a lot easier to feel sympathy and empathize with the concerns of a marginalized community who are rightly terrified that the government wants to continue fucking with them without lube and 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 And, and it, it's a lot harder to trust that whenever the government makes a proclamation, mm-hmm. that it's actually in your benefit. It's, right. just, it's just, you get it. Mm-hmm. You get why conspiracy theories arise in that kind of climate. Because historically speaking, it's been true. Yeah. So it's a good thing we stopped on white supremacy. Because you want to know, you want to know, you want to know what we're going to do now. <laughs> we're going to talk about something truly fucked up. There's a reason why, there's another reason why I also started by talking about conspiracy theories, having a discussion about its different components. So now... Today, I want to talk about something truly, truly fucked up. The plot to depopulate Africa by means of birth control. Mm-hmm. Yay. Um, except not yay, because as women, I'm, I'm pretty sure this plan directly involves us. You know? <laughs> so, so for a primer, we need to go back all the way to a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, back before there was another mass shooting in the States, before Russia invaded the Ukraine, and before COVID and monkeypox swapped shifts. Um, I am, of course, referring to 2021, when -hmm. Prince William fucked up. Now, speaking at the Tusk Conservation Awards in London on on a random, I think it was November in Mm -hmm. 2021, um, Mm -hmm. Prince William said, increasing pressure on the continents, or rather Africa's wildlife and wild spaces as a result of human population Mm -hmm. was presenting a huge challenge for conservationists as it does the world over. But it is imperative that the natural world is protected not only for its contribution to our economies, jobs and livelihoods, but for the health, well-being and future of humanity, he said. Mm-hmm. And before I get into just why this is so fucked up, I should note that this is not the first time he said this. Of course, it's not the first time he said this. Yeah. It's just not. In 2017, he said that, and I quote, Africa's rapidly growing human population was putting its wildlife and habitats under enormous <sighs> pressure. Now, do you... No. <laughs> Ex- okay, fine. Explain, explain your confusion to me, please. Please explain your confusion for me, please. I'm very confused. Why are you confused? Because if you look at our carbon footprint, thank you. You know, <laughs> no, no, continue, 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 continue. You know, it's significantly lower. You know, that's why even when you hear people talking about veganism, mm. I feel like the global north should yeah. adopt veganism because it's their not global us. footprint is ridiculously high. It's not us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, <laughs> we're it, doing all right. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> Here's the thing, it's, it's not even about, it, global footprint is just, is just but one. It's just mm-hmm. but one of the things where it's not even our fault, right? Africa also has some of the, like, one of the world's lowest population density. Yeah. And I bet you're about to say that, like, hey, Africa has a low population density because Africa is fucking huge. Also, Africa is where the animals are. And the fact that the experts have predicted that our population is going to, like, boom in the next 30 years mm-hmm. potentially would make it a lot more difficult for the animals to live, you know? Um, and, you know, just, we need to take care of the animals, Aileen. <laughs> to which I would respond to Prince William, Your Majesty, welcome to the chat. Um, you see, <laughs> the... <laughs> Yes, I was very petty. Um, You see, the issue with localizing the harm to our wildlife in Africa's population is that it completely ignores the 
a lot of these habitats are harmed because of climate change, as you have correctly said. It is not, it is, even we are suffering from climate change, even though it's not our fault. Like, we are not the ones that are polluting that much. And apparently we're gonna suffer even more, despite, Mm. you know, Mm. our Mm. lack of input Mm. into... (laughs) Actually, hang on. More to this. Um, To blame Africans for the destruction of wildlife and habitat completely ignores the fact that when y'all came and colonized us, they did even more damage. Mm -hmm. In the early 1900s, the early colonizers came through and hunted across the continent. Quoting from Life Science, and I quote, In fact, many of the European nations that are now forcing conservation measures on countries across the world are to blame for the current conservation crisis. Tigers, for example, are darlings of conservation efforts worldwide. An estimated 80,000 tigers were slaughtered in India between 1875 and 1925, when the country was under British rule. Currently, the global tiger population is less than 4,000 individuals, according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources. Now, let me check when that article was written, Mm -hmm. just to make sure that, like, I am not just straight up chatting shit here. Okay, and we are back. So, I did check it up. The article was in 2019. So, you know, mm-hmm. not great. So, for young Prince Willie to sit there and say that the population of my people presents a conservation challenge is bullshit. Um, the very conservation emergency he alludes to is a byproduct of, of European greed and colonialism. I would like to add, like, one last thing about what Prince William is saying, right? So, Prince William is out here saying that, like, our population is going to be an issue to conservationists, yeah? Mm-hmm. And he has three kids. <laughs> So. We know he's different. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but like, not like regular people. <laughs> no, but like, that's the point. That's the point, isn't it, right? Mm-hmm. He can have more than one child. He is free to breed and no one's going to bat a fucking right. eye. Right? Um, but are you seeing the quiet bit that's been left unsaid? Which, which brings up the eugenics bit of things that you were talking about, honestly. Because, you know, he's allowed mm. to breed. <laughs> yeah, he's allowed but to breed. But it's the question of who is allowed to breed. Yes. And so, like, this is this is the conspiracy theory that I want to present to you today and to the audience as well. Um, this is the conspiracy theory about population control, contraceptives, depopulating black people, etc., etc. Now, please keep in mind the, the, the five different steps of the conspiracy theories from, like, way up there. Um, then remember, they are, uh, there are five steps. It's the patterns, agency, groups of actors, hostility, hostility, and continued secrecy. But I also want you to remember that the truth can also be complex and nuanced. And as I said at the very beginning, often when looking at geopolitics and social policy, people aren't forthcoming for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. You don't want people to see your power level, to use a term from the alt-right. Um, so first of all, <laughs> The term population control, mm-hmm. how does that make you feel? Um, a bit iffy, because who, who's doing the controlling? See, that's, 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 that's just the point, right? Mm-hmm. Who's doing the controlling and how are you doing the controlling? Now, by the time the British in particular came rocking through Africa, they had already experimented with a brutal form of population control known as the Irish potato famine. Although mm-hmm. if you spoke to anyone in Ireland, they would call it a genocide. And I get it. I really get it. Because at the time, Ireland was producing enough food to feed itself mm-hmm. two times over. But all of that food was being exported to Britain mm-hmm. because that's how the Irish peasants were paying their taxes to the British to, to the English landlords, mm-hmm. right? So all they had left to, uh, to, to subsist on were potatoes. Mm-hmm. And the potatoes were what was fucked, mm-hmm. right? And when somebody suggested to these English landlords that, hey, um, your tenants are starving, maybe instead of collecting so much of their food that they need to survive in taxes, you could like let them keep some of it so that they could live. But the English landlords were, were like, but that would be depriving me of my right to rent. That would be depriving me of my full right to property. I swear to God, like that logic is so fucking capitalistic, it hurts. Um, and then time and time again, when the British government was presented with an opportunity to do something about it, mm-hmm. they're always like... No, I kind of I don't want to. So, like, when a public works program was suggested that would enable the Irish to earn the wages they needed to buy the relief aid, because, like, they didn't just give out the relief aid. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you had to buy the relief 
aid. Mm -hmm. And so when a public works program was suggested to give people wages to actually be able to afford this food, the British government balked and they were like, but why should we have to bear the cost of our stupidity? Why should we have to create opportunities for them, Mm -hmm. even though we're the ones charging them for food and also taking their food at the same time to feed ourselves? But why? And it just just kept going on and on like that. And I think Mm -hmm. the reason why they believe this is because of a man called, if I'm not mistaken, Thomas Malthus. Mm-hmm. Malthus. Mm-hmm. Now, I was an ESS student, Environmental Systems and Societies, and proud of it <laughs> in high school. And we learned about this. Did you learn about this in bio? I yeah, I took a real science. <laughs> ah, come on, <laughs> fuck off. The environmental science is a real science, and you know it. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> this discrimination cannot cannot stand any longer. But anyway, so um, Malthus or Malthus. Yeah, Malthus, Malthus. Malthus had his own ideas about population. Mm-hmm. According to Malthus, um, resources were, f- were finite while the population growth was infinite. Mm-hmm. This creates a situation where a population will outstrip its resources, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happens, the famine that results is just inevitable because it's just nature adjusting itself back to the new equilibrium, mm-hmm. i.e. culling the masses until we can get to a point where we're making enough food with the resources and the land that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, now... And as a result of this kind of reasoning, Mm -hmm. the famine or shit like that is almost seen as divine, Mm -hmm. almost seen as like inevitable. So it's not something you should fuck with. It's just just expected. Yeah, it's just Mm -hmm. nature doing its Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, of course, Malthus kind of forgot to factor in how good technology would be Mm -hmm. at improving productivity. Mm -hmm. Um, He, technology has really made it such that as I said, mm-hmm. we are currently producing enough food for everyone in the world, mm-hmm. even though there is starvation and malnutrition rampant is also in the world. Like that doesn't that that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but Malthus also theorized on Africa too, mm-hmm. quoting from Carl Ippmann, and I quote. In the pre-colonial era, travelers painted a picture of an underpopulated continent ravaged by war and slavery. Malthus used these accounts in his depiction of African populations limited by insecurity, low productivity, and primitive customs. Malthus's view would dominate British ideas of African population into the colonial era, end quote. Mm-hmm. For the British, Africa's population needed to be controlled not only for their benefit, because Africa were, Africans were a labor source, but for ours too. To their Mm. minds, we were simply too stupid to manage our own demography or people. Mm -hmm. The white man has to help. Only they can stop these poor blacks and browns from growing themselves out (laughs) of food and and starting a famine, thus eroding all the civilizing progress that they have been trying to do on the the continent. Because remember, Mm -hmm. they did not come for capitalism. No, no, no. They came to civilize. Right, right. They came to... And, like, interestingly... um, you know, in economics, mm-hmm. uh, I have an economics degree. <laughs> you show know, up, show something up, like that. use it. <laughs> but there's a concept of Malthusian economics. No way. You know, that's looking into population growth and, you know, discussing the same ideas of like, you know, how the economy of the world cannot sustain a certain level of population and, you know, XYZ is going to happen. Um, and so these systems are used to justify, you know, certain policies mm-hmm. that are implemented um, to control populations, especially in groups that, you know, they deem cannot mm-hmm. think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it can be quite harmful because you're not applying these principles to yourselves. Mm-hmm. You're applying them to other people in an effort to civilize them. Yeah. 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 So. You hit the nail right on the head. So I'm, mm-hmm. just, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna skip to the quote here. Mm-hmm. I'm quoting once more from Itman, and I quote: In 1941, Dr. Archibald Smart, a medical advisor to the Colonial Office, expressed the mounting concern among some officials over the pace of population growth in the British Empire. Dr. Smart's comment marked a fundamental shift in the position of the British government towards colonial demographic issues, as the Colonial Office increasingly viewed population growth as a threat to its efforts to strengthen the British Empire, end quote. And by strengthen, I believe that Dr. Smart it refers to solidifying the developmental gains that, a British, that, that the British had done. Thus, in 1941, a colonial population control policy was adopted in London as a method of promoting economic development in the colonies. And I think in the next episode, we will talk about why this line of thinking is bullshit. But of course, there was another more racist reason why the British sought out population control measures. 
In a letter to the to the Secretary of State for the Colonies, his name is um, Olivia Stanley, Julian Huxley, a eugenicist, and bank that word for a minute, said that, and I quote, the population of Africa will start shooting up just when all the white people except the USSR will be starting to go down. He said the quiet bit out loud. <laughs> he said the quiet bit out loud. Now... This I think is a, the maybe the third or fourth time we've mentioned the word eugenicist mm-hmm. um, because and I think it's important we stay here for a minute because you can't talk about population control in the global south without talking about eugenics. Right. Um, so according to genome.gov, eugenics is the scientifically erroneous and immoral theory of racial improvement and planned breeding, which gained popularity in the early 20th century. Eugenicists worldwide believed that they could perfect human beings and eliminate so-called social ills through genetics and heredity. Um, but, and I, I, want, and I, I want to quote from um, a review of Carl Ittman's book, and I quote, Colonial demography grew out of the nexus of the eugenics movement, birth control advocacy, and the increased colonial intervention in society in the earliest 20th century. For the next 50 years, it remained a mix of public and private initiatives because, one, the state never provided enough funds to fully support the ideas and policies of its officials determined to resolve the problem of colonial population. And two, private interests attempted to push and pull the limited funds of the colonial imperial state towards their goals. Eugenicists supported qualitative reproduction, expanding desired, that is, white populations, while reducing or at least slowing the growth of undesirable, that is, non-white populations. Mm -hmm. Birth control advocates saw family planning or providing women and men with the means to limit the size of their families as the way to slow population growth. Both groups worked with like-minded colonial officials to shape the size of colonial populations. For officials, colonial demography formed one of the several initiatives attempted in the 20th century to unite an agglomeration of metropolitan and colonial domains into a single powerful empire state. They understood population control as a direct as as a way to direct the colonial populations into the desired directions that policymakers wished they would go. End quote. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it meant forced relocation, like what the British did during the period of emergency. Mm-hmm. Other times it meant pushing a deadly IUD onto women of the global south. And here wow. is where we will introduce the Dalcon shield. The only thing to make my vaginal system shudder <laughs> and not in anticipation. Because I cannot express to you the nightmares I have had about this IUD. Oh, because... Ooh, okay, so let's talk about this fucking thing. Mm -hmm. So the Dalkin Shield is an IUD or an intrauterine device. Do you Mm -hmm. know what those are? Yep, I do. Okay, what are they? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't know what they are. Well, I am no health expert, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a device that you do, um, you know, insert this hormonal Mm -hmm. and Mm non-hormonal IUDs Mm -hmm. and... um, you know, the hormonal mm-hmm. one, of course, releases hormones. Yeah. It's a small device you insert yeah. into your uterus yep. that releases hormones that yep. prevent you from getting yep. pregnant. Yeah. And the non-hormonal one is, is usually copper like one. copper. Yeah. yeah, so like... Yeah, so uh, yeah. For, for, for those that didn't know, copper is kind of like a natural spermicide. Um, but that doesn't mean you should be shoving like pennies up your vagina just to avoid Please don't pregnant. do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, push don't. Please just go, go get it. That's you... <laughs> I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't know if pennies are made out of copper. Um, that was just a shot in the dark. Um, but the beauty just of... Just don't do that. <laughs> don't insert anything. <laughs> but, like, you, you've basically described what an IUD is. And mm-hmm. the beauty of an IUD is that it lasts for years. Mm-hmm. And they're 99% effective at preventing a pregnancy. Which is great when with the pill, you need, kind of need to take it at the same time every day. And if mm. you forget, the effectiveness just drops. Yeah. It just fucking plummets. Mm-hmm. Uh, which never worked for me because I'm a forgetful bitch. And I would forget frequently. I was yeah. just... Oh, it's... like It's it, difficult, honestly. Like, I, I tried the thing of doing it first thing when I wake up in the morning at like 6am. Mm. But then it meant like when I went out drinking and I, and I was hungover. And I just slept, overslept. Yeah. I just didn't do it that day. So it's like... It's like whenever you remember to take it, really, <laughs> is when you do take it. Oh, my God. Now, IUDs are not without the complications and risks. I mean, no birth control method is. And women are just expected to 
eat this cost. Mm-hmm. And I say this because the male birth control pill has undergone so much test. Right? Like I and and I'm not complaining that like this, this shouldn't be the thing. Mm-hmm. I'm complaining that this isn't the standard for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Two women you just like yeah, yeah, y'all y'all can withstand all this pain and like terrible side effects. Like yeah. you're you're cool with this. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz like even the pill that has had, you know, has been tested over the years and been in existence yeah. for a long time. Like personally, I had like, you know, terrible side yeah. effects from it. Like the first time I took the pill, I was like I had my period for like two almost three weeks. Jesus. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I'm so sorry. It was never ending. And oh, a bunch God. of other things, you know, like weight gain, yeah. um, Mood. you know, depression, all these other things that come with it that yeah. like people are just like, Yeah, just deal with it. Deal you know, with you, it. you don't wanna get pregnant, so just, just deal with it. that. Just deal with it. Yeah. And yet, and yet, somehow it's like too much to ask the man to do the same thing, to like eat the same cost. Yeah. Um. So here is where we reintroduce the Dalkon Shield as an IUD because this motherfucking device is deadly as fuck. And I will let you know when mm-hmm. to Google a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Um. So now the Dalkon Shield was first introduced in the United States in 1970, mm-hmm. and now is when I want you to Google it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I'll go. You Google it as I describe it. Um, it soon became the most recommended IUD because of lower expulsion rates due to its unique design. Mm-hmm. Um, it was shaped like a crab. It looks like it was designed by men who believe that because the vagina was naturally wet, yeah. anything going on in there needs a little extra thing to help it like stop from falling out. So they like the IUD. Okay. For context, traditional IUDs are T-shaped because the uterus is T-shaped. Right. The Dalcon Shield, why don't you describe what you're seeing? Please. I don't know. Like, to <laughs> me, is <laughs> I don't know. There was a stage in high school, I don't know, where we, there was this thing about, like, vaginas having teeth. Yeah. And oh, my God, yes! <laughs> to me, that's what this IUD reminds me oh, of. Shit. It's just like, why are there so many, like, sharp, like, teeth-like... Um, things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what's what's it for? Mm. It's that 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 is your IUD. It it really looks like an invasive you species. Know. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, I will let Rainy Howitz describe this fucking thing because you, you've done an excellent job. <laughs> but like, I I want like a more uh, medical, almost like professional, <laughs> almost professional description of not a thing. vagina with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Dalcon shield consisted of a plastic five-pronged crab-like shield which prevented which prevented the uterus from expelling the device. It also contained a small amount of, of copper that acted as a spermicide, preventing the sperm from fertilizing an egg. The device was attached at the base with a string made of various filaments, similar to the string of a tampon. Keep that in your mind, it's gonna be important later, which was then used to remove the device, end quote. And all of these features that I've described, the crab-like shape, the Mm. copper, the fact that it was like a string, like a tampon. um, Hanging out? It gets worse. Uh. It gets so much worse. All made this particular IUD um, the best carrier of disease and a facilitator of death. I would imagine. Yeah. So, like, first of all, the IUD did not work. Like, you know how it's supposed to prevent pregnancies? Mm-hmm. This shit did not work. So, in 1973, a woman who had the shield inserted went back to her doctor because she was pregnant. <laughs> and you know, this results in other complications yeah. in pregnancy. Yeah. You know? yeah, it does, right? So, like, when the Dark and Shield came out, the company that made it, I think mm-hmm. it was called A.H. Robbins, advertised that it was like it was the most effective IUD in the market like less than one percent chance of you getting pregnant yeah mm-hmm. less than one percent chance of you getting pregnant and this was done after one study mm-hmm. you know how to to make a claim like that you need to do multiple studies across different demographics and right. for involving multiple scientists who don't know each other to make sure that the results are verifiable mm-hmm. re- um, what's it called reproducible and mm-hmm. all that shit for science thing yeah right um, they were. They felt like they could make this claim of like one percent, ninety nine percent effectiveness after one study. Uh, that's ter- one poor right? science. Poor, poor, mm-hmm. 
poor science. Uh, so when somebody else took a look at their numbers, mm-hmm. the dark on shield's effectiveness at preventing pregnancy stood not at 99%, but at 95%. And I know you're thinking like, that's not that big of a jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but this actually meant that the, the, that, um, the actual rate of its effectiveness was 500 times higher so if I'm 500 times lower than what the Hello, it's editing me. I'm back. I just, I redid the math and it's not 500, it's 400 or like four times as likely to get pregnant on the Dalcon Shield as with any other um, product on the market. Just thought I'd clarify. I don't want y'all thinking that I can't, I don't, I, I don't know my one, two cues. Um, all right, let's, let's get back into this. Interesting. Yeah, because now you're like, now you're, you're 95% um, less, you know, you, you're, what's it called? It's 95% effective at preventing a pregnancy mm-hmm. when most ev- everything else in the market is 99% effective. Yeah, yeah. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. And yet, they did not inform their consumers. Mm-hmm. They were told mm-hmm. that, hey, it's not that effective. You need to fix it. Yeah, but of well, course, like, for their business, they're not going to tell their consumers you. that, hey, thank like there's you. tons of other methods that exist. Yeah. And this yeah. isn't as effective. Yeah. So um, now, we need to talk about that shape. The thing that looks like a vagina with teeth. The thing that has been giving me nightmares <laughs> for the last three weeks. Yeah, that's how long I've spent researching this episode. So, that shape is the reason why Dorothy Lansing, an OBGYN from Pennsylvania, decried the shield in 1974, mm-hmm. calling it, and I quote, a veritable instrument of torture, a gruesome-looking little device with mm-hmm. vicious spikes that made removal and insertion very difficult for the doctor and very painful for the user. Yeah. yeah, I'm also thinking about like the T shape. It it, cause it it matches the shape of the uterus, yeah. right? And then how do you insert this like crab like thing with like teeth on its edges into someone's, you know, vagina and uterus? So, <laughs> good question, excellent question. So according to Claire R. Rofk and Eric A. Schaff, the Dalcon Shield required ten times more force. To insert well, than a regular IUD. Now I why have the an fuck IUD. is force necessary. That's the thing. <laughs> so like, I, like so here's the thing. I have an IUD, right? Inserting mm-hmm. it was not fun, mm-hmm. right? But if that, but if I, but if that required ten times that much force that that, that my gyno had used, mm-hmm. I think I would have passed off from the pain. I didn't even pass me as I saw on Yeah, just like. Mm-mm. So explain to me how. This device was able to stay in the market for like four years. Because people hate women. <laughs> so back back to the shape. Oh the, people with vaginas. Correction. Yeah, there we go. So <laughs> these spikes would rip their way through the uterus as in like you know how the spikes were there because it was supposed to like help the device stay within the uterus? Like that's why they were designed. Right. They failed. They would rip their way out Ooh. of the uterus. And causing internal bleeding and blood poisoning for the women, then the shield itself, now detached from the uterus, would float to the abdominal cavity, which, if you haven't noticed, is not a uterus. Is not where it's supposed to be. Uh-huh. But the spikes weren't even the worst thing about this fucking device. Mm. They just, they just weren't. That distinct honor goes to the string. Now... For context, the strings on modern IUDs are made out of like a plastic, almost like synthetic thread, and they're quite thin, very, very thin. Like you cannot see them. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this prevents bacteria from getting into the usually sterile uterus. Right. Yeah. Now the Dalcon Shield used nylon. That seems cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and also medically unsafe. Yeah, like nylon—the uh-huh. thing that makes your clothes, your bed sheets, sometimes even your hair extensions. Nylon. And unsanitary too, because why? Why would you need a nylon string hanging from? Oh, <laughs> we, are, we are getting there. So, quoting from Anna C, writing from writing for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Arizona, and I quote: "Unlike other IUDs, the Dalcon Shield was attached to a string that was composed of hundreds of mono, monofilaments encased in a sheath, all made of nylon, which was known to deteriorate inside the body. The string was knotted at the end, but not sealed." Um, mm-hmm. Iron Iron Lerner, Dalcon's president, thought that the knot would be sufficient to keep bacteria from invading the string. He was wrong. 
And neither he nor Robbins, the company that made the dark on shield, heeded warnings from employees that the string would should be subjected to simple experiments f- to assess safety. Right. The uterus is supposed to be sterile, but bacteria were able to enter the string through degraded nylon or the unsealed ends and travel from the vagina into the womb inside the sheath, which acted as a barrier, protecting this bacteria from cervical mucus, which, which would have killed it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, this nylon-encased bacterial expressway could have facilitated countless infections in the womb, which sometimes turned deadly. I can imagine. Yeah. So, it's a very delicate system, the vagina and the uterus. Yeah, so often they did. And now I want to tell you the story of a woman named Maria Aguirres. Um, that's not her real name, um, mm-hmm. but in the Mother Jones article I read for this episode, that is what they've called her, and that is the name I'm going to continue using. Mm-hmm. So now... On the morning of June 5th, 1977, Maria awoke to drenched in sweat and blood. She had been warned that some minor bleeding was to be expected, but the blood she saw was not little. Mm-hmm. It had soaked through the sheet, through her mat, and was pooling around her onto the floor. There had been less blood after her oldest daughter had given birth, and the midwife just prayed. Mm-hmm. There was less blood then. Mm-hmm. But Maria was beyond prayer. She was dying, and later that morning, she died. Both her fever and the bleeding were the result of the Dalcon Shield. And what's worse is that in 1974, Dalcon Shield had been pulled from the American market because 17 women had died since it entered the market. Yet, how did one find its way inside Maria in 1977? Mm-hmm. And better yet, why? Like, why was a product that was found to not be safe enough for Americans mm-hmm. considered safe enough for women of color in the global south? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And this answer involves population control in the U.S. of fucking A. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I'm going to leave it off because I did not have time to write the rest of the script. And the script is already like 7,000 words. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm done. I'm done. Now, next time we will pick up where we left off, which is right here. And we'll talk about how population control policies led this particular IUDs and many other dangerous contraceptive practices mm-hmm. to proliferate within the global south. You will discuss whether or not this is a conspiracy or not. And then we'll get, I think if you're more than willing, we'll like get into our own health experiences um, as women, both in the West and here. Because I mean, they're the same, but they're also different, Mm -hmm. if if that makes sense. Um, I've had traumatic experiences, you know, in Kenya and in the States with the healthcare system. It's not great. Yeah. It's it's not great to be a woman. Yeah. As a woman, as a black individual... <laughs> All right, so is there anything else you want to say? Anything you want to emphasize? Um, feel free before I wrap this sucker up. Um, nothing in particular. I think it was really interesting what you said about qualitative re- reproduction. I qualitative think that's reproduction. You know, like the buzzword. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure. In the next couple of years, we're going to hear Republicans in the U.S. and like far-right people around the world mm-hmm. start saying qualitative reproduction as a dog whistle for eugenics. For, for eugenics, because mm-hmm. it because it's it's qualitative reproduction is vague enough to mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah, 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 and it sounds nice. Mm-hmm. It sounds nice, but we all know what it means. Yeah, yeah, it means eugenics. It means eugenics. <laughs> anyway, I hope you're doing all right. And we've talked. I know we've talked about a lot today, and I hope it made sense. If it didn't, please listen to this again and again and again until it makes sense. Share it with your friends and discuss this. You know what? Put it on the Bible study group. It's important. It's very important. We all need to learn this. Um, As for me, (laughs) I'm done. I am out. Are you out? Are you done? I am done. (laughs) (laughs) This was great. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. You're coming back for part two. You're coming back. As soon as I write you, you're coming back. (laughs) Bye. This was fun. Bye. Bye. (laughs) All right. We're done. We're done. That's great. Mm. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to the Utajua Hujui podcast with your girl Aileen. I have been so blessed to have you in our space. Yes, it is our space today. Thank you so much for listening to me and giving me your time of day. I truly appreciate it. If you want to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. My inbox is looking a little lonely. You can reach out to me on Instagram at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D. That's at 
Pod on Instagram. Reach out, let me know what you liked about my episodes, what you think I should improve on, perhaps suggest new topics and new directions I should explore. Either way, I would be so glad to continue this conversation with you on that medium. And otherwise, have a fantastic time and I really do want the best for you. Bye!